Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is Roger Mason. Roger started off his career in the 80s in a series of new wave and post-punk bands, which included touring with Wall of Voodoo, playing in Gary Newman's backing band, and playing keyboard in the short-lived supergroup Illustrated Man, which featured members from, among other bands, Gang of Four and Japan. After a few years of success in that scene, Roger decided to try his hand at composing for film, TV, and other media, and has been doing so ever since, working on a number of indie projects throughout Australia, as well as in the US and the UK. You can find a number of Roger's projects on various streaming platforms, and you can find the scores there as well. He jumps across a variety of genres, which surprised me a bit, given his rock, post-punk, new wave background. I know this episode comes as a surprise, it's only supposed to come out every two weeks, right? But, you know, I have so many to get through, I didn't want them to be sitting in the back burner for too long. So, you'll see another episode next weekend, and then we'll hopefully be back to the episode every two week schedule and stick with that for the foreseeable future. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, there's plenty more to come. So, sit back and give it a listen. To be honest, it's it's a rapidly changing industry that it's at the cutting edge of technology, and that's a challenge in itself, and I guess that's something we could talk about later if you wanted. Quite apart from the music itself and the creative aspect of it, keeping up with the technology and the shift in taste, which was happening a lot quicker, I think, than it ever used to. You know, like in the 70s and the 80s, where everything reverted back to orchestration for a while. And so that became, well, with John Williams and stuff like that, and every, all of a sudden, everyone wanted an orchestral budget. Then that kind of started to change in the 90s. And it was largely because, I think, trends, people were starting to get used to orchestras and starting to get a little, little tired of them because there's only so much you can do with an orchestra. And then with the advent of technology and sampling and, and things like this, it really did change the nature of composition. And I think everything became a lot more tonal as opposed to melodically structured and along with, you know, obviously the different styles in dance music that filtered into film music and beats became more prominent and loops. And it seems to shift regularly on a, like a, it's a, a continual turnover of style. And it's, it's a, an incredibly interesting period, I think, in film music. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd agree. I think... There, there are a lot of people who really just want that orchestral music, and I think it's in, in part because they grew up listening to John Williams and some composers mm. like that, and it still exists today, but like you said, there's a lot of tonal music, a lot of drone, and a lot of crazy experimentation going on. I feel really spoiled because I'm, I'm interested in all those styles, so there's anything you could possibly think of, there's going to be film music somewhere that's come out in the last year, two years, three years that's going to fit that. It makes me really happy. I do imagine from your perspective, where you've been scoring for film and TV since, when did Aya come out? Like 1990, I think. So, I mean, it's been about just over 30 years. So that's that's got to be tough adapting to that changing landscape. Yeah, that's the challenge really, isn't it? And I think that's actually a challenge that, as composers, we're probably more prepared for as to what's going on in the world today in general 
where that kind of rapid change and shift in technique and skill set as composers and musicians who were working in media, I think we were better prepared for what was to come now, where people in ordinary jobs are finding their regular jobs shifting. The technology is shifting, the skill set is shifting, the credentials, the credentializing of the workforce is shifting. And as musicians, it's always been adapt or die. Having said that, a lot of composers and a lot of musicians that I, I used to know from when I first started are no longer working because they couldn't make that leap from orchestration into electronics and synthesizers and samplers. And I was fortunate in, I came from a synthesizer background. My early interests were in bands and I started playing the piano when I was quite young. By the time I was 15, I bought my first ARP Odyssey, which I still have. And that formed the basis of my interest in electric, electronic music and, and bands. And I'd always had, there was always classical music playing around the house because my mother was a, an amateur opera singer. And my father was a, a fan of jazz and he had hundreds of records of a lot of Dixieland and swing and things like that from the 1920s through to the to 1950s. He, um, he sort of had a cutoff around about 1950 because he didn't like that modern stuff, you know. So I guess I was kind of lucky that I had quite a bit of an eclectic overview of music and film music and I was addicted to television when I was younger, so... That was my education of uh, watching films and films like old films of the 60s and 70s and 1940s. And so I had a, a good rounded view, I think, where it was a little bit of orchestration. One of the, the earliest pieces of underscore that I became aware of as a teenager was a film called The Andromeda Strain. Well, it's um, a composer called Gil Mel. I don't really know much about him, but I think he was... Um, he used to do a lot of commercials, a lot of session works around uh, session work around studios. Well, he was one of the first guys to actually really start scoring properly with synthesizers, and it's an entirely a synthesizer-based score. And I think it was probably early to mid seventies. And you look at it now; it's a very chilling film. It has that sort of sixties film noirish, Cold War type vibe, but it's quite a powerful and atmospheric soundtrack and it's it's from memory it's completely synthesizer driven so things like that i was really interested in the contemporization of scores but then of course you know everything comes full circle classical music worked its way back and orchestrations worked their way back in so i became heavily involved in that but now everything is hybridized everything is a little bit of everything which i think is just fantastic i've never been a purist to be honest I've just been someone who likes to smash genres together and take a little bit of electronica and because I, I play a variety of acoustic instruments. So I love to create a blend between the electronic world and anything that I can do that adds a bit of uh, melodic or esoteric value with a, a cello or a nickel harper or a myriad of other instruments that I have that I've been collecting for years. That's something you can hear, at least in some of your scores. I was watching a couple episodes of The Reckoning, and that really has a surprisingly heavy use of acoustic guitar that appears throughout, which is something that I don't think you hear that often in film music. See, I was listening to um, 
an earlier score of yours, I think it was called Dead Letter Office, which again featured what sounded like flutes or pan flutes almost in it. And then again, you know, some acoustic guitar in there too. So it's interesting hearing those because even with orchestral music and the hybridization, as you call it, you don't necessarily hear a lot of those types of instruments in there. It's kind of refreshing. I mean, I'm no purist either. I, I love the experimentation and mashing genres, so it's fun hearing those things and hearing things that's not unheard of, but it's just the things that you don't hear that often. Yeah. I think some of the things where you think it's acoustic guitar is actually things like there's, there's a fella in Pilot Mountain called Ken Bloom who is a, an instrument maker of bowed dulcimers, and they're these um, strange little hybrid American folk instruments that were created in the 1800s. The only reference to them, he found one in a pioneer museum. And you know how there are regular dulcimers where they're lap dulcimers or Appalachian dulcimers that you play on your lap like this, this sort of hourglass shape. And there are hammered dulcimers, you play with hammers, kind of like a chambalom. But this, you play upright, kind of like a cello, but it's only about a third the length of one. And it has a fingerboard like a cello, except it's fretted. And so he found a photograph of one in this Pioneer Museum, and he tried to replicate it, and he succeeded. And so I bought a family of them. There's a bass, a cello, and a viola register of these instruments. So quite often what you think is an acoustic guitar is actually me playing one of these instruments. Yeah, they have a, a slightly deader tone, as if you were playing a cello, but a, it's a small-scale cello. So I've got a lot of instruments like that that I... I take out of the context that you would normally play them in and I kind of reimagine them by playing in different styles with different techniques. It makes it a little bit more interesting by mixing it up, you know. Yeah, definitely does. So then when you're when you're doing that and when you have this arsenal of different instruments like that, when are you deciding to use those and to pull them out in a project? I mean I'm I'm sure those aren't gonna work for every film or every show. So I mean Where's the the thought process and when to use it versus when not to? Yeah, that's an important one. I think when I first started, I think every young composer goes through it. You tend to try and come up with every trick you can think of and cram it into the this project because this project is like going to make you famous. So I think I got a lot of that out of my system earlier on without too much damage. But I, I, of course, I look back to a lot of that early stuff now and it's it's so embarrassing. So you have to have a good reason for it. You have to find something in the story that compels you to use a doodle, for instance. Is there a reason for it or are you just trying to cramp, shoehorn an instrument that you happen to love into the score for no good reason? And I think the, the 90s in particular were very shameful in that way. They tended to use a lot of ethnic instruments purely because it was the it was the era of looking for different tones and different colors. So I think there was a lot of cultural appropriation through that. And in particular, people, I don't think instruments themselves is a problem, but when people start taking loops of um, tribal chants and things and then putting a beat behind it and then calling it their own, that always felt to me to be problematic. And sometimes contextually, those type of things were in movies that ordinarily have no association with that style of music. So there were a lot of mistakes made and a lot of scores that were just wrong (laughs) for films of the period, purely because 
there was this new thing called world music. People are a lot more mature and, and composing has evolved and people's tonal palette, what they're used to hearing now is more sophisticated from not only a composer but the audience. So I think people are more discerning about how they use an instrument. So what I do is when I'm looking through a script, sometimes you don't even get a script, you get a synopsis. And so you try and eke out the essence of the characters and what their motivations are. There might be something within that story that begs for a level of intimacy between the characters. And so then you start thinking along the lines of what is an instrument that will provide that intimacy? And it might be something traditional like a piano or a cello, or it might be you might be able to treat it from a, a different perspective. And I guess this comes into the tastes of the producer, their expectations, their adventurous nature. Quite a lot of producers in Australia I've discovered are conservative. And so they're less likely to go with something they haven't heard before than they have, which makes my job kind of boring because I'm always trying to do things I haven't done on a previous project. That's the thing that keeps me interested. I'll always try not to repeat myself. I think I've largely succeeded. There are certain things, obviously, that keep coming up that you can that are reminiscent from something I may have done five years ago. That's a m melodic line, perhaps, but because that's my style. And you can't avoid certain things. But if you can find that one instrument that is the core or the core sound of that character or that plot line, then... Everything builds out from that, and that's usually how I start. Interesting. And I, I, you know, I don't want to jump away too much, but one thing that you said that really struck me was talking about how producers in Australia tend to be on the conservative side. Have you noticed that that's a trend based on the location of the film or the geographic base of the studios or the producers behind it, comparing you know, an Australian production to an American one, etc.? Yeah, it's Reckoning is probably a good example. Reckoning was... An American production that was shot in Australia. Sony had bought out the local film production company here. And so everything I did on this show went through the Australian producers. And it had to then go to LA to be discussed with the LA producers. So there are about six producers there. There are about four producers here. Plus there was the network here. And so all told, and this is a trend in today's film composition that never used to exist is that there are many more voices who have an opinion now with regard to the scoring. And so it can be very frustrating and very difficult to navigate all of that stuff. And I find myself having to do parts of the score more often than I would have otherwise. But that's, that's a different aspect to what your question was. The biggest difference, I think, between American producers and Australian producers are that American producers generally work to a higher level because they have more time and more money. They tend to develop projects quicker and faster because they have more resources to throw at everything. We're a population that's basically a tenth of yours. We have a tenth of the money that we throw in to film. And in Australia... There's very much a, a survival aspect. I know this is something that's universal with producers around the world. But in Australia, it can be quite difficult. And the frequency of getting jobs up can be fewer than the opportunities are fewer than they would be overseas. So 
producers tend to get a little gun shy about things that that may challenge an audience. In particular, we have a conservative government that's been in power here for a long time. In a small country like Australia, that has a big influence on the national broadcaster, for instance, which relies on government money. They've been a little something of a plaything because they're funded by the government. And so in recent years, the ABC, the national broadcaster, was used as a training ground for future composers, filmmakers. Everyone used to come up through the ABC, much like the BBC was in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s in in Britain. Well, that's been eroded now. They hardly do anything in-house anymore. As a result, their funding's been pulled back. Because of that, they don't do anything in-house. They have become more deferential because their budgets have been slashed. They've become less willing to take up a challenge. So they will, they're less willing to take up a job, a production that is going to challenge the audience. So everything has, that conservatism has kind of filtered down in Australia and throughout the industry. And the networks by nature, the commercial networks in Australia, of which there are another three, they are also conservative. So producers know very much in advance what they can get away with and what they can't. But sometimes I've been involved in, in just recently, one of my last jobs, I was involved in a production. It was a very dystopian series about the end of the world. Well, not the end of the world. The, the future of Australia, not too far into the future, where climate change had taken hold and cities were running out of water. The city centres were becoming enclaves for the rich and locking out the poor who were now living in camps on the outskirts in the largely arid areas surrounding Sydney. So that was the premise of the series. Was that the commons? That's the commons, yeah, that's right. And what happened was... Um, at the same time, there were bushfires raging around Australia. It was one of Australia's worst national disasters. And this was in summer of 2019, 2020. Almost the entire east coast of Australia was on fire for months. We would drive into the studio and there would be black smoke and you'd be looking on the horizon to see, is the fire here yet? And I live an hour north of the studio, so I'd have to go into Fox Studios in, in Sydney and uh, I wasn't sure that by the time I got back, the fire wasn't at our doorstep. It was a precarious time. The irony was that we were, we were doing a dramatised version of that very thing, and we were, we were locking off the mixes at that point where these fires, we look out the window, and you can see the red glow in the sky for, that was going on for months. And the network were getting worried because the show was becoming was dark, all of a sudden, they became, they became a little panicked. And the producers are saying, we have to tone the music down. This is halfway through the, the mixes. And I'm saying, well, that's a pretty dark subject. <laughs> Look what's going out out there in the real world. And they said, well, that doesn't matter. They're worried there's going to be a turnoff because of that. But I'm thinking, so they're pulling the music down. They're trying to get rid of the darkness and try and lighten it up. And I'm pretty much a lone voice saying, that doesn't make sense because when this goes to air... It will air on Boxing Day 2020 and Australia will still be in the middle of this catastrophic disaster. So they're going to be seeing a representation of the thing that's outside their immediate area, replicated dramatically, but it's a pale replica of what is happening in real life. And it just didn't make sense to me. So that is, I think, the difference between Australia 
and America and internationally in Europe. They wouldn't have hesitated to, to represent it as it is. They know how to go dark and they know how when to uh, pull back and when not to. But in Australia, we get nervous about that because they're terrified of losing viewers. And so I think that is a fundamental mistake. But it's because of the economy and the opportunities that are fewer here. And I understand the reasons why producers do that. But I look forward to a return to the more risk-taking in the future, if that is possible. Yeah. Well, in one sense, I can see where they're coming from because I was actually, I was watching that show about 45 minutes ago, or at this point, maybe an hour and a half ago, and watching it, and especially now where it's a year and a half, two years after it originally came out, and things seem even more dire globally in, in one sense. I'm, I'm watching, I'm going, this is like such a depressing future that I'm seeing because it feels like we're on this trajectory. But at the same time, that's the point of the show. It's showing that. And so already committing to have something of that subject matter that's going to be represented in every episode and then having it almost done and then getting cold feet and wanting to pull back almost makes it seem like a, an insincere or representation of everything. Yeah, I, I think, and, and that was one of the things that I said at the time, it's almost like they regretted taking it on board halfway through. What did you think it was going to be? It was definitely a case where art was not imitating real life because real life was way more powerful than the thing we were depicting dramatically. But yeah, I mean, it did herald in something that was much bleaker. And I think um, the whole situation in the world now, everything seems to be compounding COVID and without getting too much involved in the gloom of the subject of a dystopian future for the planet. The Commons kind of held it in in the fires, the bushfires, was, I think, the first really big statement, particularly in this country down here where we have the debate about carbon emissions, has been going on for a decade now where we just seem unable to move from it. So that was actually represented within the film as part of the reasons around the bushfires and everything. But since the film has been made, yeah, we have the pandemic and global warming around the world has just taken off in a massive way that people can no longer deny it. It's just it's just there. So unfortunately, I think you look back on the comments and you think, okay, well, we kind of hinted at it, but it could have gone a lot harder. But anyway, it is what it is. Yeah, it's, it's like you said, I'm sure you read the first treatment of the show that was ever put together and probably became very clear from the first page that that's what it was going to be. So once you've decided to make that show and that subject matter, you can't then shy away from it. But, and you know, unfortunately for you being the the composer and like the lone voice of dissent, the composer doesn't always have the voice that sways everything. No, that's true. And there are times where you don't have to be literal with what's on the screen very much. I'm all for that. I'm all for playing against the scene especially when things are being overstated on the screen. But that was my point with this show, that someone needed to be the voice of authenticity, in a sense, in my opinion, because it was kind of being skated over visually and plot-wise. And I just felt we were in danger of it becoming a family drama, whereas it was more there was more going on that. And I was trying to play the subtext of what was happening outside their window, whereas the film was concentrating on what was happening in the film in the family unit so it was a hard sell for me in the end so I ended up just going with whatever they demanded as every composer has to inevitably you try and 
get your perspective across, but sometimes you, you win a few and you lose a few. So I have plenty of battle scars from the years of working in this business to face up to that reality, that it is one of those things that sometimes your opinion is sought and sometimes it's accepted and other times, basically, they just want you to do what they want. And that's not as much fun. But it all depends on who you're working for. And I guess, again, it comes back to that concept of is the producer adventurous and um, willing to take risks? I've been fortunate to work with a few directors and producers in the past who hire me specifically because I'll go out on a limb. And the idea is that a friend who is now a friend of mine, a director friend who has hired me on a few things, said he likes to hire me because I quite often go out further than most other composers. He said, I can always reel you back in if I have to, but you can never get someone to go further than what they're capable of. So that's why he keeps going back to me because we have a, an understanding, an unspoken way of working and knowing what each other's expectations are. Is that an approach you'll take often of trying to see how far you can push and what you can get away with before you have to be reeled back in? Or is that going to depend on, like you said, the specific director and producers involved? Well, quite often I'll establish that before it start, the, the project starts. What I like to do is have a month of my own pre-production. That's when I'll consolidate themes, textures, instruments. I'll clean out the studio. Um, this is just a, a little sort of B room here. I quite like working in it though because it's really crowded and everything is around me and I can just spin around and do what I need to do. But yeah, I normally like to come up with a core palette and that core palette will then give me my limitations because it's really important, especially for someone like me who has quite a wide eclectic palette that I can draw from. And it's also a dangerous thing because if you don't have that, that framework, you can go off on all kinds of tangents and you're miles away from where you should be. So I get a very tight palette of instruments and I work out something that is going to be unique to that project. And then that becomes the thing that I use as the core of the thematic material and the tonal material. And usually that's will be dependent on if the demo I have given the producers has triggered a favorable response because it's no use doing that stuff when they say, hey, that doesn't sound like the demo. What are you trying to do? It has to be a result of something you've already made them feel comfortable with or, or that's the reason you accepted the job. You were chosen for the job. Usually if they like the demo, then you produce this palette and a basic theme. What I tend to do also is create a good half an hour to 40 minutes of music beforehand. And quite often, a majority of that music will end up in the film or the, the TV series. What it does is it takes the heat off you when you're in the heat of trying to get these episodes out. You can play with the modular. You can start experimenting by connecting different pieces of equipment up with each other. You can do all the things that you really can't do when you're trying to write and create all of these interesting technological connections and sampling and things. And so I, I draw from that and include that or little pieces of it into the wider score. So if I create a theme that is, has a textured cello line that I've processed, and it may have taken me 
several hours to come up with a processing chain that actually works for this loan. Well, I've locked that processing chain in so I know that I can utilize it at any point in the score whenever this theme is supposed to be rearranged and introduced. And so I'll do all that stuff beforehand because otherwise if you don't, you just find the deadlines don't allow for it. Unless you've got a team of people working for you, but I've never had a team of people. It's always just me because that's the way I prefer to work. Have you ever had a team or an assistant, a co-composer on any of these projects? No, no. I've, I've always worked by myself. I used to work for a, a composer in LA uh, as a ghostwriter for about five years. And that was interesting because it was a great experience. But even so, we never worked together. He would work in his studio and I would work in my studio. And he would allocate certain films for me to do, which I would write and orchestrate and then record and, and take control of the sessions and even mix sometimes. And he would do his own films. And so we never really collaborated. There were times where he was working on a film and he simply was too busy, too caught up in other things. So he would ask me to come in and write an action scene for his film. So I would do that and then I'd go back to my film. But we never, we never worked together during that whole thing. And because he liked to work alone as well. It was, a, it was a funny relationship. But I've just been more comfortable not having to worry about someone else's input or just making my own decisions as inspiration dictated. I've always been a little bit of a, um, a loner that way, very comfortable in my own space, so I think as a lot of composers are. I don't think that's news to you. <laughs> no, and it's, it's interesting because you do find so few composer duos or at least composers who will frequently collaborate together i mean there's there's obviously a few well-known ones and then several others as well but it's yeah you're right it's pretty rare and i think just talking to you one aspect that totally makes sense is you sitting in this room and saying oh i can be on one instrument turn 90 degrees be on another instrument and just spend hours noodling around and trying different things yeah it really is something that i always aspired to when i was when i was a kid the accumulation of instruments wasn't through just wanting to have all this stuff. It was the ability to come up with all of these tonally different aspects and techniques at your fingertips. Instead of having to hire in musicians, quite often I've had difficulty bringing in excellent musicians, be they cellists or banjo players or, I don't know, uh, hurdy-gurdy players, and inevitably, I've been a little disappointed because I haven't been able to convey exactly what I had in my mind. So over a period of years, I accumulated these instruments and learned them so that I can actually do them. Now, I'm a master of none of those instruments. I'm not even a master on the piano, but I've been playing it for the last 55, six years. But I'm competent on several instruments, not so competent on some, but I play within my limitations. But what I manage to do each time is to get my idea across. And so quite often, I used to have very accomplished players, and I still get them in from time to time. But I want them to play something that's very simple and is articulated a very particular way, the way I hear it in my head, and they can't do it because it's just outside their skill set. And it is one of those difficult things where you can get a, an absolutely brilliant player in 
but they may not have the sensibility. Often that sensibility relies on the ability to improvise. A lot of classical musicians just simply can't do it because it's been trained out of them. So after a number of years, I went through all of these where I hired lots of musicians. And then I realized that quite often it's easier and quicker just to do it myself. And I may not get virtuosic performances on a hurdy-gurdy or a nickel harper. But what I will do is get that core idea that I have in my head across. And I will probably dumb it down a little in order to, so it doesn't sound like rubbish, but I will get that thing that I was after rather than torturing someone in a studio for no good reason other than I can't articulate to them what the thing in my head is that I'm trying to get them to play. I think that's really interesting. And it reminds me, I was talking with, with Harry Escott last year about his jazzy score for uh, the BBC drama Roadkill. And that was one of the things that he talked about, kind of the opposite, where it was one of the first times for a score that he was playing with, it might have been like a jazz quartet, and he'd give them the ideas and they'd all be playing together. And because of the, the improvisation and that improvisational skill that that group had, They'd keep playing and riffing on it, and as he'd be hearing it, he'd go, oh, these guys have actually figured out my ideas even better than I had in my head. So it's, it's interesting hearing the dichotomy. Don't get me wrong, I've been incredibly honored to have some performances brought in by players. And if you can find the right players, they can take your music somewhere that you hadn't. By no means do I think what's in my head is the absolute epitome of of the best it could be and sometimes you're surprised but I have a strong idea of what I want and if it's unconventional music which is what I like to do it's a lot harder to try and get someone to adopt that mentality if they're not used to it if you're doing something that is slightly more conventional with something that's slightly jazzy then the only way to go is to get real players in especially jazz players because they can adapt their whole thing is about improvisation. Classical musicians, though, it's, it's quite a different ask, and it's way outside their comfort zone. This actually leads into something that I'd been wanting to ask for, I don't know, a couple months at this point. Because prior to moving on to scoring for media for film and TV, you're in a series of new wave post-punk bands, which obviously, on one sense of it, is typically the, the opposite, where it's you know, you've got a four-piece and it's a collaborative process. So first off, I just found it so cool that the amount of big names and groups that you were playing with, you were with Wall of Voodoo when they toured in Australia, Gary Newman's backing band, and the short-lived Illustrated Man with one of the guys from Gang of Four. Yeah, Hugo, Hugo Burnham and Rob Dean, yeah, from Japan. I told a friend of mine of that and he, like, lost his mind because he's a massive post-punk fan. What is, was that experience and working in something that's constantly collaborative a difficult move then to this much more solitary creative process? Yeah, it's a whole different thing. In fact, I'm going through it again. At the moment, as this interview is taking place, Australia has gone into a national emergency when we're not so smug anymore. You know, being this isolated little island down south, we are the state of New South Wales where I live is now raging with uh, with COVID, the Delta variant. So things have locked down again. Things have been shut down. Live entertainment has been brutalized for the last 18 months. And of course, local production has been seriously 
affected by that local film production. So I've actually reverted back to um, playing live. It, it happened by accident where a friend of mine from um, the band The Church, the singer Steve Gilby, had a, an American tour booked for last year. And they'd been, it had been in planning for a long time. It was going to be a six-month tour. It was a pretty big deal. Then COVID hit. Everything got shut down. All of a sudden, he found himself wanting for a project. So he decided to record an album locally up here, north of Sydney. And I became involved in that. And we recorded essentially five albums over a, a period of about five months. That turned into a, a live thing as well. So... I had vowed I would never, ever be involved with a, a band ever again because I enjoyed playing with bands, but the two things that bugged me the most about it was the amount of time you spend waiting around. You, you go into sound check, you wait around. You go to the gig, you wait around. After the gig, you wait around. It's just all this dead time, and it's really unproductive, and it, it used to drive me crazy. Not only that, but it's the repetition. The repetition of playing the same songs every night used to drive me insane. I was always wanting to do new things and different things. Well, Steve is kind of like that too. He's a restless soul and he has quite a unique way of writing songs and he has a particular way that he looks at music. So we've had a lot of fun and we, we along with pop songs, we did a, a double album which was released about a month ago called The Hall of Counterfeits and it's Steve Kelby and the Winged Heels. And what it is, is a double album of sort of reimagined music from another era. So our jumping off point was Mesopotamia, and that turned into a double album of esoteric material that we wrote using a variety of my instruments as well, such as the hurdy-gurdies, nickel harpers, dulcimers, and all the rest of it. And we ended up writing two albums worth of material, decided to release it as a double album. It was then decided... It was a bit of a hard sell, so we'll combine it with some more commercial tracks. And so that did pretty well. It, it entered the indie charts at number 12, so I haven't been keeping my eye on it. But the band dynamic is an interesting one, and it's completely different to film music. It's worlds away from it. It has its own particular, peculiar set of rules, and the personality dynamics, it's more of a, a collaborative thing, and there's no overarching structure that kind of constrains you it was an interesting way of going back and revisiting my early my years when I was 15 when I joined my first band it was strange on many levels and it's it's that's an entire discussion in its own but the thing that I had avoided playing live on stage playing with a group of guys it's actually really really enjoyable it's really kindled this new energy in me that I think after 30 years of being a film and television composer, you tend to get locked into a certain mindset, even though I'm, I always try and mix things up, tonally, techniques, everything. At the end of the day, you're writing for screen. There's a certain structure that you have to comply with. With bands, you can do whatever the hell you want. It's really adventurous. There's, Of course, there's the working with three other guys is always a challenge everyone you know you have your fights and you have it's semi-democratic as opposed to being in the uh, music department for a film production where you pretty much have no control at all you make suggestions but then you get shot down in flames at least you can fight for what you want in a band and you'll win a few and you'll come out of it with a few bruises 
but it is a collaborative process that is quite different in every way to writing film scores. Yeah, it's wonderful. But unfortunately, the live aspect of it, we managed to do three short tours and we're about to embark on another one, but um, COVID has put that to rest. So we're just in a, a state now where I think everyone's desperate to keep busy. So everyone creates projects, creates different things that they can occupy their time with. Because if you don't, you just become dormant and disillusioned and um, you have to just invent new reasons to keep writing music. I don't know. In one sense, it makes me really happy that this 40 plus year musical journey of yours is kind of returning to its roots. So that's, I mean, that's got to be a lot of fun. Look, Roger, it's been been a real treat talking with you. I think we've we've just passed the 60 minute mark. But one thing that I did want to ask before we part ways, we've been talking about how there is, even though it's smaller, I mean, there there is a film and TV industry in Australia. But I, you know, I think at least from the US perspective, we probably don't really know a lot of the people that are involved in it or that might be known in Australia but haven't branched out into Hollywood or internationally. And so are there any film and TV composers that you found interesting in Australia that might not have, uh, have broken out elsewhere? It's The whole thing is in a state of flux. To be honest, I know a lot of people who have left the industry, not only composers but directors and producers. And COVID has really done a lot of damage and people have just realized they can't sustain. But one one composer in Australia who... I've always admired more than anyone else was the composer for the the Bangara Dance Company. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're an indigenous dance company that was set up in the late 80s, early 90s, perhaps, by three brothers. And they do largely indigenous-themed contemporary dance theatre. They're world-renowned. They're really spectacular and creative. David Page was the composer and I always felt he was probably the best contemporary composer in Australia. Unfortunately he died five or six years ago quite young but yeah I would have to say that he was probably my favorite. He pushed boundaries, he created, I don't know that he did anything at all for the screen but what he did for live theatre and live dance was just spectacular. Tonally creative, adventurous, always with his indigenous culture front and center, because that was the whole reason for Bangara to be there in the first place. He was deeply imbued with the spirit of everything of, of their culture. And David really represented that on, on, in a contemporary way, more than anyone I can think of. So yeah, he would be, out of anyone, I would say he's the guy. I mean, it's... It, it's... A shame that he passed away so young and so recently, but it is just hearing and I think especially watching you talk about him really drew me in. I haven't heard his music before, but I, I really want to try to find some of it now. What you will find is that you will understand the spirituality of what he was creating and what he was using to inspire him. You can't not be affected by it. Yeah. And the way that they choreo choreographed the music and, and the concepts of their legends and things that are all derived from their culture. He did it so expressively and so creatively, and it's so emotional and powerful. 
it really is quite powerful and the energy is just undeniable. If you have the opportunity, there are some things, some clips online of Bangara. And I think, if anything, it represents the heart and soul of um, Australia better than just about anything I can think of. Well, then, yeah, I guess you couldn't have picked a better representation. Well, Roger, again, I, I really appreciate you joining me. It was, uh, it was a real pleasure to talk and I'm also really excited to check out some of the projects that you've been working on as well as uh, some of David Page's work. Thank you. Yes, it's been very enjoyable. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity.